Hello, I'm Jeff Bird, the producer of the More Than A Shop podcast. This series was recorded before the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic. We felt it would seem odd to release further episodes without acknowledging what's happening in the world and considered delaying or adapting the series. In the end, we decided that this is perhaps the perfect time to consider new ways of doing things, as we all imagine a different future. More Than A Shop covers some of the big topics of the day, before coronavirus came into our lives, but there are issues and topics that aren't going anywhere. We hope More Than A Shop provides some light and inspiration in these difficult times. With that in mind, here's our latest episode. Please enjoy and share. Hello and welcome to More Than A Shop, hosted by me, Elizabeth Holker. We're welcoming guests with something new and radical to say about the big issues of the day. Well, the flavour of the series is a search for new alternative ideas in the spirit of the worldwide cooperative movement, which happens to have started in my hometown of Rochdale. Well, co-ops proudly offer radical alternatives to mainstream ways of getting things done. They are indeed so much more than a shop. Today, we're looking at that most essential of subjects, food. And here in the studio are two guests who spend much of their lives thinking about ways to improve our relationship with food. Claire Negus is a project coordinator with the organisation Incredible Edible. That's a network with over 200 groups worldwide. And Hugh Richards is author of the book Veg in One Bed, as well as star of his YouTube channel, which has 164,000 subscribers. So welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Hi there. So I'm going to ask you both later for your big idea. That's something that might make a difference to our relationship with food. But for now, I just want to hear a little bit more about what you both do. So Claire, I know Incredible Edible has been growing fast uh, since it was set up about a decade ago um, in the town of Todmorden. What does it do? Well, it started in 2008. There was uh, two ladies called Pam and Mary, um, and they looked at their hometown of Todmorden and thought... This place needs some help. There was a lot of deprivation, a lot of um, people out of work. There was no love uh, for their community. Um, So they thought, right, how can we make this better? And they started by putting some planters in the actual town centre and growing vegetables to start up a conversation with people to get people involved with healthy food and growing and starting to love their town. So food and access to food was one of the main problems that you identified? Um, Yeah, it was more, it was a conduit to get people together, to get people to love where they lived and to start talking to each other. So it was was about galvanising the community together, really. Okay, and what's the philosophy behind it? And, you know, considering cooperative values and how they're applied to this project? Well, most incredible edible groups start with a small group of people who would like to make their community better in some way. That's kind of where it comes from. So it's a grassroots organisation where people facilitate what they want in their community which is kind of how a cooperative works. It's about the people and they deciding what they want to do. And were the founders, was was their background in food, in food production, in growing? Um, Not really. I know that um, Pam used to be a teacher, I think. But yeah, they just wanted to learn and grow and grow people through 
food, really. Yeah, so it was almost a hobby, but that they identified could impact the community in this yeah. positive way. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, they, they, they identified that people don't necessarily have that connection with food and young people don't really know where their food comes from. They just see something in a plastic bag from the supermarket. So, yeah, it's about bringing that connection to food as well. And how did it spread to these 200 groups across the world? Well, the the incredible edible group that I'm part of in Presswich was one of the first to um, start up after Todmorden. They heard about it. I think they had quite a lot of press at the time. And there was another group of like-minded people who wanted to improve the area. We started out with planters in Presswich Village with herbs in. We had them outside the Metrolink station where um, people could pick their herbs to take home. And it was about starting a conversation and people seeing something going, what's this? How can I get involved? And then little projects started developing all the way around Presswich. We've got veg beds in St Mary's Park. We have quite a big setup in Phillips Park now, which has an allotment that people can visit and help. We've also got a forest garden in the Clough, which demonstrates all the principles of permaculture. So there's lots of different ways of growing and there's lots of different individuals who who bring something to the table. Well, making it accessible and, and visible what is key to what you do isn't it yeah definitely and we're open to as many ideas as possible and if anybody wants to get involved they can because i mean the motto of incredible edible is if you eat you're in so it's all of us everybody everybody (laughs) can be part of it there's no you can't come in and another thing that we believe in is the power of small action so it's like small little things can all mount up to something quite big which again is is a lot about where a cooperative comes from and it's about people taking it on board then in their yeah. uh, local area as it's well in their community empowering people and giving them the confidence to make change yeah make their community a better place to live in and you know not be isolated so it's not just about about food it's also about the community that builds no, up around I it no i think i think we believe more in people than the plants really the growing it, it, it's a reason to get together it's a really good reason to get together but um, doing it in community as well yeah. and building those relationships so there's a well-being aspect to it and definitely yeah a huge part of gardening is well-being as i'm sure Hugh would agree Okay, well, Hugh, um, I mentioned all those subscribers to your YouTube channel. What is it that you're doing out there that's obviously, you know, chiming with people and bringing them in? Yeah, so I grew up on a small holding and my parents got me involved with growing food since I was three. Around age of 12, 13, I decided to start documenting what I was doing through video because I had a lot of spare time and it was summer holidays. And so I began filming videos and this is already we have smartphones, do we, for this sort of thing? Or? We have smartphones for this sort of thing, but I had a little point and shoot camera. Okay. And and I was speaking like this because <laughs> I was 12 years old and um, I was showing how to grow roses and, and all those kind of things. But it kind of transitioned into food because I think about food a lot. And so I noticed that there was a really big interest from people all around the world about growing food so my channel has been seen in all but around four or five countries globally and I think what's also different is people are seeing a young person so I'm 20 years old so they're they're looking at this like why on earth is there a 
kind of this kid showing the, us about growing food. And I think that interests people and gives people hope. And something that gives me great hope is a lot of people expect that my average age is above 50 or above 60. But my biggest audience segment is between 25 and 35, which I find extremely exciting because I hope that that's the age of young families and getting kids involved. Why do you think that uh, the perception is that people your age aren't interested in where their food is coming from? And why are you finding that actually they are, that people in that age bracket, 25 to 35, do want to know how to grow things and make their own food? I think the internet has allowed people to be a lot more curious about things. It's just, especially the younger generation, especially going through school, Food was kind of just seen as this thing which was given to you. You were never told how it was produced or anything. So on one side of things, you see this rise of veganism. And the other side of things is um, you see people just show no interest whatsoever. So there's kind of these these two big areas beginning to grow. And I kind of put myself in the middle and, and really just kind of what you're doing with Incredible Edibles is I'm really trying to reconnect people with where food has come from when people don't realize the effort that goes into producing food you get a lot of things like food waste because there's no respect for it they don't understand so for me i actually think it's really easy to to show kids about growing foods and and the great thing about gardening and growing food is it's one of the few subjects which can facilitate the teaching of of every single subject on the curriculum if you do it the right way so i kind of see this i kind of see food education as a vessel of putting really important information to people especially young people in school. There's a business aspect to it, biological aspect to it, community aspect to it, like we're saying. Yeah, okay. Science, maths. Okay. You're always going to find a connection. Yeah, English, art, you can do anything in a garden and you can use a garden to teach anything. That is the beauty of it. It's almost like you should have schools in a garden and, and move it, you know, teach around it and use that. And it's also using your hands because when you're sat in a classroom, kids, they're not programmed to just sit in a classroom for days on end being spoken at. They want to get out there. They want to actually try things and practical learning and learning through having fun. I have no idea why this isn't being done. At what point did it go on from being kind of a hobby, something that your parents made you do as a a child, weeding and that sort of thing, into realising that this is actually really serious and that it can benefit us all if we reconnect to to food and understanding where it comes from and how it's grown and produced. I really think the tipping point was when I was around 16 and I reached my first a million views. I thought, okay, this is serious. And I'd started earning some money off that as well. There was definitely something in this and definitely interest in this. So for me, the great thing about YouTube is it's free information. So I've made over 400 videos now and in terms of watch time I've had over a century and a half of watch time so yeah I saw that there was definitely traction in this and I thought okay I'll get my A-levels but I've kind of completely forgotten about uni and just gone gone down this aspect. Do you think your generation are reacting to you know being stuck in all the time driven everywhere having things easily accessible at supermarkets at the click of a button do you think they do want to get out there and and you know like you say sort of be hands-on and I think I think it's really tricky because I think a lot of kids don't actually realize that that is an opportunity and can be done and you, you mentioned supermarkets they're, they're so effective because they're convenient 
and it leads on to so many other issues looking at things like seasonality and that lack of connection or that lack of story once young people are shown that they have a choice and an option that's when they start going for it and i I don't mind if people don't grow their own foods i just want people to be aware about how food is produced and where it comes from and the impacts that has both positive and negative because i know claire one of the things that incredible edible focus on as well is reconnecting with dying arts pickling and bottling and that sort of thing and learning from older people and an older generation who definitely yeah i mean um i went to an incredible edible project in rochdale opposite the Kashmir youth project and they worked together and the elders from the Kashmir youth project have been showing um, people on the um, peer project um, how to preserve and pickle and what herbs to use and things like that. So there is that. I love the idea that there is these lost arts that can be passed on to me or Hugh. You know, you could also look at my grandparents' generation who went through the war and rationing and how that can really impact your use of food. My grandma always had a jar of pickled eggs and pickled onions, which is hard to imagine. Exactly, but it's knowing about how to use it all and how to use up your waste as well and how to preserve it so that, you know, your money goes a bit further. But yeah, it is a lost art, that connection. Yeah. Now... Like many of the subjects that we're going to be tackling, food is obviously hugely complicated in terms of production, distribution, health and well-being. So we're going to boil things down, forgive the pun, and I'm going to ask each of you to identify one particular challenge that faces us regarding food. So Claire, would you like to go first? Yeah, food wastage, I think, is a huge problem. It's quite easy to go to the shop and buy a big bag of apples and forget about them and then they go mouldy and they're in the bin. And the environmental impact of that is the cost of the production of it, the transport of it. You know, it's so throwaway and so easy to do that. You, your idea? My idea is a kind of complete forgetfulness of seasonality. We've been very numbed by seasons when we look at where we get food from, thanks to the supermarkets. I honestly believe that nature gives us things at certain points for a reason and you might think that's a bit hippie and stuff but but nature's been working really efficiently for thousands and thousands of years and it will always outlive us so for me i think looking at seasonal food is the most important thing because if you look at seasonal eating you're immediately far more likely to be able to source food a lot closer to home And so, for example, if you're looking at getting more of the perishable items like strawberries or something in January and February, these are quite likely to be flown in um, to, to the UK. And that's a massive environmental impact. And plus, they don't taste good at all. For me, this also brings in the the lack of connection and lack of understanding of, okay, we've got this food. What do we do with it? How can we cook it? I go to so many people's houses and people just don't think about flavour. It's more of a chore to just get some food in you. But when you get that excitement of knowing what to do with seasonal ingredients, you'll then suddenly have a bit of a eureka moment and and never look at it in the same way. Claire, one of the first things I was thinking when you were saying about the bag of apples, I mean, I'm guilty of that. Um, Often that's, like you say, it's just so cheap, isn't it, to buy a whole bag? I live on my own, so I'm not necessarily going to eat them all in the time that they need to be eaten. 
how would I avoid doing that? I think you've got to look at lots of different ways of tackling it. Looking at being able to conveniently buy one apple, for instance. The other way is looking at how you can preserve your food. You know, you can look at ways of freezing them ways of cooking them up and freezing them in individual portions. You can look at making jams, pickles, fermentation, which is quite a big thing now. You know, there are lots of ways, and these were all sort of traditional things that happened with sauerkraut, especially on the continent. We used to pickle things more because you don't we don't really have a history of fermented stuff. So yeah, it's about having that relationship with your food again and really loving what you're doing and taking time. I think just the sort of idea of throwing things away, we're so comfortable with that now, Mm. aren't we? I mean, my parents generation aren't comfortable with that they'd rather eat everything on their plates even if they were full oh yeah than my, throw it in my, the bin. Mom, my mom has little pots in her fridge of beef fat and lamb fat because she can't throw anything away and it, it is it's a generation thing and myself I, I've got kids and you know busy family life and yeah I feel awful throwing food away and I can hear my parents saying it and I and my, my grandparents would be turning in their graves they really would so yeah even mashed potato from Sunday made into uh, potato cakes for the exactly. next day always yeah or I, I put a lot of stuff in my freezer okay cryogenic storage is the way forward so how do we even begin to kind of reverse that mentality that we have now you know just seeing food as so disposable it's I think we can easily I, throw away I think as Hugh said is you've got to maybe people need to understand the complexity and you know, of actually growing food and how much effort it takes and how much time it takes because we're very instant. Whereas, you know, if you've got an allotment and you've got a whole load of kale that you need to eat up, you've got to eat that kale or you've got to preserve it because otherwise you're wasting all that time and energy growing that food and it's all going to go to waste. So... Planning and time. Planning and time. And we're all... And we are very time poor. That's the way that life is. And Hugh, one of the things that really struck me about what you said is the taste of these things. So often they're flown in. Have we got used to fruit and veg not tasting as it should? Unfortunately, yes. And also the nutrient quality of food has been declining. So if you look at nutrient values, whether it's meat or lettuce or apples, over the past 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you've seen a decline. And what's the reason for that? Because farmers, um, the supermarkets pay by weight. So they don't care about the nutrient quality. And I understand why, because they're they're trying to make some money. So they're just growing varieties that put on a lot of water weight so they they can get that. And it's also a lack of respect for the soil. The soil is the most fundamental thing when it comes to food. And when you don't respect the soil, that's that's huge. And I know a lot of people give give a lot of stick to things like cows and, and methane and things like that. But when you look at intensive ways of growing vegetables and the topsoil erosion of that, it's, it's a, a massive environmental problem. And so I think changing that is, is, is really important. Yeah, because that's about lobbying big business, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I also think... You know, growing your own food is, is kind of dangerous. So if, if you decide to grow your own tomatoes and then you eat them, every other tomato you're going to get in a shop is just going to be so disappointing. It's ruined. It's ruined. <laughs> I, I, only, I only grow... I only Tomato eat, evangelist here. Yes. Yeah. Homegrown tomato evangelist. I only eat homegrown courgettes because 
they don't taste right. I have otherwise. to say, I, I had a, an allotment for two and a half years yeah. and we produced a lot of beetroots, which did taste amazing. Oh. But I didn't have the time to keep it up. Oh, so that's really what hard, would you say it? to somebody like me a failed allotment yeah yeah that, that, that's exactly it. i think it, it's about um starting small and one of the things that i'm trying to do is is destroy a lot of perceptions around growing food and try and give people less excuses to do that so you think an allotment is too much of a big thing to take on for a so beginner did you or st- someone who's time poor it could be yes but if you start small in a container that's more manageable. And it's can you do that easily? And I don't have a garden either because I live in town. So. Have you got a balcony? No, I don't. Have you got windowsills? <laughs> I got do daylight? have a windowsill. Yes, daylight. Is that all I need? Daylight, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Or even lights. You can buy lights now to grow your own food. So I, I think what's happening is we're, as a society, we're coming a bit subdued and, and lazy. I'm not saying that you're lazy at all, but what, what I'm saying is people can get put off by the the effort needed mm. and the most important thing that that i say is yes yeah, start off with some pots and slowly build up because you can feel overwhelmed if you take on an, an allotment so imagine that you're used to driving a car and then suddenly you're told to fly a boeing 747 it, it's that kind of step because okay. it, it's, a, it's a massive change so it's about small incremental steps and building up your confidence and when you do take on an allotment you've got to remember that the first year is going to be the most time intensive because you've got to set up that infrastructure but once you start every year after that it gets easier and easier it's like practicing muscle memory you could always um join a project okay. you know um you could join an incredible edible group local to you i think that there is one in manchester and everything that is grown in an incredible edible project is you can take and harvest yourself so you know you could be part of a community allotment for instance so you don't have to necessarily do it on your own it's and actually i think it's more fun when you do it with other people it's as simple as that really and the community aspect and then you've got the community aspect where you could maybe share your produce you know um like in an allotment if you've got a glut there's always somewhere where you can leave your glut for everybody else to take one of the other things i just want to ask you here as well is we're so used to it's an attitude thing like we were talking um about with claire we're so used to be able to getting foods from all over the world whenever we want them now aren't we how do you claw that back how do we reverse that kind of attitude and go back to wanting things that are seasonally produced i mean can you see was reversing I the think, trend. I think it takes something like, let, let's look at what happened with David Attenborough and, and Blue Planet and how much of a shock that was for everyone. I think you kind of need that shock truth factor to happen with food as well. As soon as they see the, the kind of impacts that are happening on, on mass monoculture scale food, then I think there'll be a shift. And it's going to be tough, but you have to do it and that's what my life goal is you know i'm not going to give up or just give everyone a homegrown tomato i'm no way i am sharing my tomatoes sorry <laughs> no i know you get very yeah. I mean, grow your own yeah. okay yeah well one of the latest trends in food retail at least has been the rise of the food hall typically older buildings that play host to a range of different street food style outlets our producer jeff bird has been to visit the one in radcliffe near berry yeah, so I'm Alan McCrell and I'm the market manager. 
Uh, I'm Rob Grant. I'm one of the directors on the Community Benefit Society Board. So describe the place for me. I mean, it's a beautiful old market. That much is obvious. It is a wonderful space. It's uh, like an industrial shed building that uh, contains what was always the market in in the centre of Radcliffe, but we've um, just re-engineered it a little bit so we could install some kitchens and some food outlets as well as a bar because we recognise actually to get people down here, they need a reason to come down. And what better reason than food and drink? We took management of the market nearly two years ago now, and it was just about eight or nine traders at the time, retail traders. We installed the kitchens that are around us at the moment, brought in some local entrepreneurs to run businesses. But actually, do you know what we've got is a place where people can come, they can eat, they can talk. We also have lots of other things going on. So we have indoor bowling in the winter. We have Tai Chi, a weekly choir. We put on some bands as well. In terms of the food, I can see big tables where it's served up. Tell me some of the kind of foods that you can get here. So we've got uh, Louisa's, who provide sourdough pizzas. We've got the Northern Glory kitchen. Mogul's, who provide us with a Punjab cuisine. Yotai, Blackbird Pantry, which is a Southern American Caribbean feel to it. Acapulco Mexican and we have Prez who are a local company doing wholesome foods organic foods. And you're a community benefits society what does that mean? It means that we are owned and run by our community for our community so we're a non-profit making organisation all the money that we earn through the bar and through the rents and through the people visiting goes back into refurbing the site and reinvesting in the site to make it bigger and better we're run by a board of volunteers who've all got day jobs we employ people from the local area it's part of our principles that the money we earn and the impact we have is for Radcliffe and we just want to build a sense of pride back into what is a great place to live i think when we first started off before it actually happened and people could see what was going on people weren't sure but now that they see what we're doing the response has been great so so food becomes an agent for community change but it's also an agent for kind of economic remodeling and ultimately it's also about creating an exciting experience through food yeah i think um, to use a, a cliche phrase the high street is now about experience it's about spending time together and when you see families come here and all of a sudden family can order from four different five different cuisines it makes it that much easier to have a time together so it's not about finding a restaurant all of these kitchens are owned and run by individuals with their own ideas and their own invention so they can create what they believe in and what they're passionate about but that means that people that come here are going to get something that is unique to to their dining experience because it's someone's own passionate you know, recipe that they're passionate about. Sorry, what's your name? Rose. And you're here on the Acapulco stand. Yes, I'm uh, doing a Mexican and Japanese food. So why the cross between Mexico and Japan? That's an unlikely well, Because one, uh, my favourite food. <laughs> so why not? I cannot explore. explore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a good place to explore here, is it? it they is, give you the freedom. It's the right place as well because a lot of people is uh, supporting Radcliffe Market. If you will come here by Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, we are all busy all the time. Fantastic. Thank you very much and good luck. Uh, What's your name, please? Uh, Kate. I own a food stall in the market called Northern Glory alongside Sharon, who is our head chef. And our business is focused around northern food, hot pots and pies and the typical kind of northern home comfort. Black pudding? Black pudding in a bit of a pie, or it can go into a sausage as well. Sounds terrible to me, but I'm sure there are plenty you love it. Well, <laughs> well there's vegetarians as well, if you're that way inclined. How do you feel people partake of it? You know, it is a community benefit society. What difference does that make? Because our profits are spread out within the community, I think people feel like 
spending money here is a good thing rather than just it going into someone else's pocket. And we also take into account the society's values. We have to cook fresh food on site, make sure that all our packaging is compostable, no single-use plastic here, and we have to make sure that our food's coming locally. I mean, right behind us are the three words we live by, connect, believe and change. Writ so, large up on the, on the brick uh, wall here. And that's so we don't forget them. Um, so we want to connect people. We want to connect them to great food, great services. So can we grow stuff locally? We've had some uh, microherbs growing in, in our cellar. We're connecting with local community groups to bring fruit and veg in. And really, we, we're driven by creating a sense of belief. But we're very fortunate that we have a big group of volunteers who help make this place what it is. We had a flood at the weekend. We put a call to arms at every for the community and we had 20 people dredging our basement and I think that is the real impact of what this is about when the community says we'll do that that for us tells us we're doing the right things that was Jeff Bird at the thriving new food hall in Radcliffe so we asked each of you to bring us one idea however grand or modest that could be used to make a real difference to how we all think about food Claire what would you like to see happen Um, I'd like to see more urban agriculture. So, you know, on your walk to work, um, you will be walking past growing food. That connection is right there on your doorstep all the time. And it is about imagining an urban landscape full of vegetables and growing and orchards and schools based around growing. It's possible if there is you know, a lot of grand changes to in our... In the way at- that we think. In the way we think, our, our attitude to our time, our attitude to work. And are you talking about city centres here? Because yeah. I live in Manchester city centre. A lot of the land is privately owned. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pressure on space. I mean, yep. every square four metres seems to have a 50-storey building going yeah. up on it at the moment. I mean, how can we sort of infiltrate those spaces or... There is quite a bit of empty space sometimes in towns and cities where landlords can't get tenants in. Now, all those shops, you could set up some microgreen growing. You could grow mushrooms. Inside the shops? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So persuading landlords as well, I guess, because because rents are high, aren't they? Yeah, rents are high. People will own those spaces as well. Rents are high, but if their shop's empty, then they're not getting any money. And it seems really silly. So why can't there be... You know, if they've got all these empty spaces, why can't you trial a, a project where it's this could happen? I mean, there's loads, all the universities are really exploring urban agriculture, growing with aquaponics, hydroponics, growing under lights. That could all be explored within an urban environment and then it would bring everybody that connection to food. You'd be able to go and get your salad from the corner shop because it would have been grown in the corner shop. So it would be produced and then sold in shops in the city centre or yeah. rather than yeah. you know people going and Yeah. Picking I mean it there are market or... gardens in and in and around Manchester anyway and they grow for veg boxes and they grow for restaurants. But it's about making it accessible to everybody because it is quite niche. It's you know you've got to pay and it's not as convenient or easy as a supermarket. And, you know, you've got that scale as well that you've got to feed a huge amount of people. And is it about uh, forming relationships, uh, connections with local shops or with high street 
supermarket chains yeah. or yeah definitely well, and but equally you could form a cooperative from this sort of idea you know you could have people coming together and kickstarting this project and having ownership in it and it is a cooperative and they take the profits and put it back into this you know it it could be a community so driven would project yeah. benefit financially eventually from well, it as well or yeah but i mean i feel think, some ownership I think, yeah i think it's more about ownership than financial benefit for a, a lot of cooperatives and it's fulfilling a need yes you're getting healthy food and i think that is the reward is that you've got healthy food with no air miles no road miles with very little um, cost to the environment especially if they're using renewable energy so that is the reward in itself sometimes looking at something in financial rewards and figures and money and statistics like that you, you can't put a price on being able to eat something that's been freshly picked i think the most underutilized space in city centers are rooftops so i've been in london and visited some amazing they do this open squares where they open for a weekend and some amazing rooftops up there and there's never been a better time to be able to have access to those rooftops because businesses even if they don't care about sustainability like to pretend they care just so it keeps the public happy beehives so, and things on exactly the top of, uh, so just ask buildings. them and say look we'll, we'll do it for you and they they'll love it as a pr thing but i think that's a really useful yeah space. and there's a lot more social responsibility for companies now anyway so you can always tap into that and I'm just thinking about how you bring people together to form these cooperatives as well. I mean, I've lived in my building for five years and I don't even know my neighbour's name. You know, how do you sort of You need to have a housewarming that? party. <laughs> That's how it works. Okay. <laughs> well, do you know what? It doesn't matter. It, they don't know. If you don't know them, they might, you know, you think, well, I need to get to know my neighbours. Why don't you have a barbecue? Starting with a small change. Yeah, okay. and get to know your neighbours, start talking to people Or move later to the country on. for a better way of life. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hugh, can you tell us what your idea is? Yeah, so my idea is that every household should grow one thing that they really enjoy. It's just more, more of a challenge, just not bite off more than you can chew. Small steps can make the biggest changes. So... I just invite each household to choose something that they really enjoy growing and would be excited about. So this could be strawberries or even potatoes. I mean, homegrown potatoes, roasted or made potato wedges, amazing. So just start with this one thing, give it a go. And there's so many benefits of this. Firstly, if you have kids, it's a great way to teach them about patience because at the moment it's very much about instant gratification, wanting, wanting, wanting. But, you know, if they're going to pull up that potato plant too early, they're not going to be able to eat anything. So that's what I'd say. I'd, you've got to be excited about what you're growing. I mean, that sounds great in theory. What about people who are living, as we were discussing with Claire, in high density areas? How would they do this? That's a great question. And I think it's about choosing something fun to grow on a windowsill. All you need is a windowsill, even indoors. You can look at microgreens, but something that I love doing and costs hardly anything is growing pea shoots. And you can do this any time of year and have a bit of a taste of summer. And I think that's really special. So you can just buy dried peas, soak them for an hour, and then plant them in a tray of maybe 
four to five centimeters of compost, cover them with another centimeter, plant them really thickly as well. And in about two or three weeks later, you'll have an amazing crop of pea shoots. And then just harvest above the first little leaf and you might be able to get four or five crops from that. And I think that's something really easy to get started with. I mean, this is all sounding doable. Um, what about scalability though you know when we're facing a growing population when access to food is under a greater challenge than ever before how can this realistically solve food sustainability on a global level in this country having just spoken about food wastage it's hard to imagine that there isn't enough food for everyone it's quite a difficult question to answer because i'm not an economist and i'm not you know i'm not a town planner I think the best way to do this is to start small and see what happens because solutions will come. We'll see a problem and we'll fix it because that's what we do. And it will come from individuals coming together, forming, getting ideas to work. Yeah, I mean, it is a really tricky question and I I couldn't answer it really. Sorry. I think we need to use the tools which we have at our disposal. So, for example, me, it's about utilising the internet because it's never been easier to connect with people all over the world. So we need to, to use that to transport either the successes, the failures, the ideas, people's dreams, people's visions, show what's happening, get people speaking about it because the idea with social media is it's got to be social and you've got to have people get an opinion about things and make them want to comment and interact so that's that's what i'd say and i also think you need to find those individuals who do have that energy and those radical ideas and you need to support them because if they feel unsupported they might give up so it's about joining these together connecting these people together and letting them grow so more importantly than ever just not to feel as individuals disempowered basically we can make small changes okay a lot of what you're talking about seems to be exposing different people to different ways of relating to food there's more out there in terms of community schemes i know there's a really good story of a case in rochdale claire yeah um i i went to um the pioneers museum which is the home of the first cooperative toad lane on Toad Lane. I met uh, this wonderful guy called Andy and his story is just really inspiring. Um, He was homeless two years ago. It was in January. They had the Pioneers Museum. They were running cooking classes and it was cold and wet and he thought, right, I'm I'm, going to go in here and get a warm cup of tea. At least I'll, you know, I'll get dry. He hadn't spoken to people anybody for months he went he got his hot cup of tea you know he felt like part of something and he went back again two weeks later and from that his confidence grew his he he managed to get somewhere to live and he helped with other people who were there to form something called the pantry which is a cooperative food bank And that was such a success for the local community that um, with the profits, they all got together and thought, right, we would like to grow some actual fresh food to be able to offer at the pantry. And that from that, they developed lots of planters on Toad Lane. And it's now the incredible edible Toad Lane allotment. And Amazing. Yeah, it was it and through this he he discovered a passion for Rochdale itself. He didn't realise it was a home of the cooperative. He learnt all about this. He'd been living there for fifty years and he you know, he had a passion about where he lived now. And he has been 
giving back. He's now a mentor to other people. He, he just speaks so passionately. And that's infectious. So reconnecting to his community. Yeah, yeah. And had now, all these positive kind of ramifications. Yeah, it just, you try and do things to make good, but good things do happen like this. Yeah. yeah. And Hugh, do you have a similar story of someone you know who would have been overwhelmed by the idea of uh, producing their own fruit and veg, the, the seasonality of it, all the things you've been talking about, but has put it into practice and it's made a positive change. Yeah, what motivates me is when people send me emails or direct messages on Instagram, sending pictures of things that they've grown because they've watched a, a YouTube video of mine. And they're like, thank you, this is the first time we've ever harvested our own potatoes. And I think that is so exciting. And I also love, like with my with my book, Veg in One Bed, I've had a lot of grandparents buy it to do it with a as a project with their grandchildren which is kind of like what used to happen with the allotments. So I think things like this uh, are really exciting. So skipping the generation who might be really tied up with work, grandparents working with children. Exactly. Also taking into consideration, Hugh, cooperative values. How do you as an individual doing your thing on YouTube, how do you incorporate the values of of the cooperative movement? Well, I really agree with, with all, all the values and I think it's it's just kind of the moral decision. And, and for me, it's about being able to support everyone regardless of their background. So for example, all my day courses now, I offer a pay what you can afford structure. So there's a suggested donation amount, but if you can't afford that, that's fine. You can still come on the course. And it's about being inclusive, which is not being done enough. And very often it's the people who can't afford these opportunities they have the fire in the belly and the passion to do it. So by allowing people to have that experience and opportunity and empower them, give them all the information they need, very often you'll see that, that this will make the biggest change. Fantastic. Thank you both very much for coming and joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. To hear future episodes of More Than A Shop, subscribe to the podcast at morethanashop.coop or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than A Shop is a collaboration between Cooperatives UK, The Co-op, Co-op News, The Cooperative College and The Cooperative Heritage Trust. The series is presented by me, Elizabeth Holker, and it's produced by Jeff 